welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten, and in this podcast, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Siobhan Crichton from King's College London and Dr. Benjamin Bray from the University College London. And we're going to be talking about their recent research paper that's just been published in the JNMP, looking at patient outcomes up to 15 years after stroke, um, survival, disability, quality of life, cognition and mental health. Um, so thank you very much, Siobhan and Benjamin, for joining me today. Great. Pleasure to be here. So the, f- the first thing I wanted to pick up on is, is sort of the interesting concept that your paper addresses is, of course, the shift from stroke being, um, you know, something that kills people to becoming a chronic condition. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, so if you look back um, at what's happened in stroke care over the past 25 years or so, you can see it's really been transformed and the outlook for people having a stroke has changed dramatically. So back in the early 90s, there wasn't there was quite a lot of kind of nihilism about how people thought about stroke, and um, patients didn't receive many interventions to improve their outcomes. But over that time, we've had probably a few a few big interventions that have really transformed the outlook of stroke care. Um, so first of all, we've had the rise of uh, reperfusion therapy, um, initially with uh, intravenous thrombolysis for patients with ischemic stroke, and now more recently the evidence around uh, thrombectomy in terms of improving outcomes. Um, and secondly, probably more importantly, um, has been the concept of organized stroke care and the development of stroke units. Um, and as a result of stroke units that we know uh, in randomized controlled trials improve patient outcomes, reduce disability, and improve survival, um, survival rates in acute, acute stroke have improved around the world. And certainly if you look back at data for the United Kingdom, um, 30 days survival for patients with stroke has now um, improved um, such that back in the early 90s, about 25 or 30 percent of people with acute stroke died in the first month after a stroke, and now that's fallen down to about 10 or 12 percent. So, very big improvements in, in survival. And that's fantastic news, um, and that a lot more people are now surviving the stroke. But what that does mean is that more people are now living with stroke as a long-term condition, and that means living with stroke as potentially living a life potentially with the, the long-term consequences of stroke. Um, and that's really the our paper was to try and describe uh, using data from our population-based register what those long-term consequences of stroke are, and try and quantify it to how how you know, how common they are, how many people get them, and try and map out um, uh, patients' trajectory um, up to 15 years after stroke. I mean, something you touch upon in your paper as well, of course, that the outcomes in the literature are largely limited to survival rates, you know, rather than than other health outcomes, which I suppose is where your paper comes in and trying to sort of uh, look at those long term outcomes with the increased uh, improvement. Yeah, and I think that's very important, actually, because, you know, because obviously, you know, survival and mortality, you know, is very important, but that's really a very simplistic way of looking at stroke. And we know that if we speak to, to stroke survivors, there's many things that affect their life um, after stroke, have lots of um, potential complications from stroke. Um, and so, you know, it's really important we try and get good data on the, on the other outcomes of stroke, and not just survival and mortality. So, I mean, your study looked at long-term outcomes of stroke, um, such as survival, um, as well as things like um, cognition, quality of life and, and mental health. Um, and you use the South London Stroke Register. So what were the major outcomes from the study? 
So in our study, we included um, data from just over 2,500 people who'd had a stroke um, back from 1995 to 2003. And um, we found that 30% were alive 10 years after stroke and 20% 50 years after stroke. And so among those who were alive, we looked at outcomes across a range of different domains. Um, and we found that overall, the proportion of people who had poor outcomes remained relatively stable over time since stroke. So the proportion living with um, poor outcomes was the same in the long term as it was in the short term. Um, in summary, we found that around one third of survivors any time after stroke had moderate to severe disability, a third had a moderate disability, and around one third were independent in their activities of daily living. We also found, looking at extended activities of daily living, so how active the survivors were, around 50% um, were classed as being inactive. We looked at depression and found between 35 and 40% of survivors um, were classed as being depressed, and around a third were anxious. We also found just under a third experienced cognitive impairment. So, I mean, using the information gathered from your particular population-based study, um, how do you think we could begin thinking about sort of, you know, managing and preventing these long-term consequences of stroke, which, which your study demonstrated was in a significant proportion of, of the stroke survivors? So I think, I mean, part of it goes right back, you know, right back even before stroke. So there's probably there's different ways to be thinking about this. So first of all, even before stroke, we need to be better at, our efforts at primary prevention, um, so to stop people having a stroke in the first place, um, or at least if they're going to have a stroke, delay it later on in their lives. So key things around here are kind of around tobacco control, um, management of hypertension, um, and detection and, and um, treatment of atrial fibrillation. When people have stroke, we know that there's um, interventions that are very effective in the acute phase at improving outcomes and reducing disability in the long term, um, which, as I mentioned before, are, include uh, reperfusion therapy for ischemic stroke, stroke unit-based care, um, and some models of, of um, rehabilitation, like early supported discharge, where people receive therapy in their rehabilitation in their own home um, after stroke. So delivering those interventions that we know work in the acute phase um, um, will improve outcomes in the long term, certainly in terms of disability. Thereafter that, we really are lacking in very good quality evidence about what you can do to modify and hopefully improve outcomes in the long term. So to illustrate that, illustrate that we still don't really know how you can, we don't, there's no, we don't know, for example, how you can reduce individuals' risk of having um, congestive impairment after stroke, or how you um, might reduce the, the um, other symptoms that, that, that people experience, like fatigue, which is very common, um, and also the psychological consequences of stroke, such as depression and anxiety. So all these things that happen later on in, in, in the life of people with stroke, there's really no good evidence about how we can, how we can manage, manage these effectively uh, for people, which kind of highlights, and it was always easy to kind of point to further research, but, but I definitely think there's sort of a gap in our current understanding um, of stroke-related um, harm, um, but also in terms of developing interventions to help stroke survivors in the long term and live a life as free as possible of the, of the consequences of, uh, of stroke. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something you also mentioned um, in the paper, which I picked up on, was that some of these estimates um, sort of from the study possibly can already be applicable in a healthcare setting, such as just even just sharing information with patients about, you know, the prognosis and things like that and, and what sort of things to expect after stroke. I think that's very important, actually. And certainly, you know, one of the uses of this sort of, this sort of information come from the study is that, is that it allows people to have better conversations and hopefully more informed conversations with people with stroke um, and their families about the long-term prognosis. They can give people sort of realistic information around you know, not just survival, but also the other things that might happen you know, later on in life. Um, it's always slightly hard when you know, having conversations about long-term outcomes when there's not really much in the way of you know, treatments and interventions we can offer no, of to, you know, to reduce them. But I certainly think in terms of, in terms of getting us into a world where we have increasingly more informed conversations with patients and an increasingly shared decision-making to make, to make decisions about kind of care, healthcare and interventions is the place you want to go. So the more information we can generate to support that sort of model of healthcare, I think is, is, is important. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today and, and walking me through um, and our listeners through your research paper. Um, the paper can be found in the JNMP uh, and it's on jnmp.bmj.com for free download. So, so do have a look. Um, and thank you so much again, Siobhan and Benjamin, for joining me all the way from London. Thank you, Liz. Okay, so I'm now joined by Professor Yusuf Rajabali from Aston University in Birmingham, and we're going to be talking about his recent review in the JNMP, looking at hereditary and inflammatory neuropathies. So Yusuf, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So, I mean, thinking about hereditary and inflammatory neuropathies, as a clinician, are these often quite difficult to sort of distinguish between in the clinic, or, or is it a fairly straightforward process? As a clinician, um, differentiating between genetic and acquired neuropathies is usually straightforward and relies on a careful history taking, um, consideration of uh, the family history and also of the clinical examination uh, that one obtains. Uh, it is a usually straightforward process, uh, although this, as we will see for, uh, in this discussion, there are cases where the, um, the task is slightly more difficult. So your paper looks at um, ordinarily, I suppose, hereditary and inflammatory neuropathies are viewed as arising from separate etiologies, um, being fairly distinct from one another. So do any of the cases identified in your review challenge this view? The um, genetic neuropathies are, are different from acquired neuropathies in their pathophysiology and also in their clinical expression as a result. And uh, the disease course is also uh, very different. Furthermore, genetic neuropathies are not uh, amenable to treatment, whereas inflammatory neuropathies are uh, importantly treatable. Cases we have reviewed from the literature here demonstrate that in a number of patients, there may be an overlap between genetic and acquired neuropathies, making the distinction less clear for the neurologist. This obviously has therapeutic consequences, and it was therefore important to determine whether such cases were common, first of all, um, to determine whether there was a definite proof of their occurrence and existence, and uh, also to uh, ascertain the implications for clinical practice. So, I mean, your paper does seem to suggest that there are a number of instances whereby an inflammatory component is identified in patients with a known genetic etiology. Um, can you tell a bit more about that, sort of what, what can be garnered from those cases? Are they common? I think the first um, finding of the review would indicate that the association is uh, not common. Um, it 
also highlights the many uncertainties about previous reports and raises the possibility of coincidental uh, co-occurrence, as in the post-infective cases of uh, particularly acute forms of inflammatory neuropathy, where patients with genetic neuropathy would simply have had an infection, which would then lead to them having uh, an acute inflammatory component to uh, nerve damage. The review um, also cast doubt on the genuine um, therapeutic response in a number of treated cases where um, the precise information required to be absolutely sure that these patients responded, which is uh, a very important point in patients with inflammatory neuropathy, um, well, the information required was not always uh, very clearly available. However, our review demonstrates that in a small proportion of patients with genetic neuropathy, there may be an inflammatory component to their uh, nerve um, disease and uh, did show that there are a certain number of signs which may point towards this association and that these are mainly rapid decline in neurological function in previously a very slowly progressive disease, the onset of proximal weakness in the arms and legs, the onset of pain, or the onset of uh, positive sensory symptoms. Our review of the literature also indicates that the uh, main diagnostic tools um, that can be of help in determining the association are neurophysiology, uh, about which there have been a certain number of doubts um, in, in, in the past several years on, on the usefulness of this technique in this setting, um, the use of cerebrospinal fluid examination, and also the use of uh, imaging techniques such as MRI with contrast. It has also uh, evaluated the small number of cases where pathology was of help and um, does raise a certain number of, of doubts on the usefulness of nerve pathology in that setting. You just briefly touched on it then, I suppose. I mean, how with this understanding or this sort of increasing understanding that there might be a small proportion that have this sort of genetic and inflammatory component, if I've understood that correctly, Yusuf, and correct me if I haven't. But um, And that there are certain tools that the clinician can use to sort of address this in a practical sense. So with this sort of slight ambiguity, um, how can that be sort of addressed in clinical practice? I think the, the main conclusion that is, uh, would be that in clinical practice, uh, the main features to l- look out for would be clinical. Uh, besides the um, obvious need for a, an adequate family history, one has to be uh, very careful uh, about the presentation of the patient in terms of the type of neuropathy. And in, in this regard, in CIDP, for instance, unusual forms, such as the pure sensory forms, uh, may need uh, more detailed review and consideration of alternative Causes. But uh, in addition to that, it is also uh, vitally important to inquire about um, unusual features for uh, CIDP, such as autonomic dysfunction, which is uh, very much unexpected in, in CIDP, the presence of pain, the presence of carpal tunnel syndrome, the presence of weight loss, which are all uh, very unusual features for typical forms of CIDP or inflammatory neuropathies at large, and which should raise uh, concern about the possibility of other diagnoses. And in this regard, uh, our review focuses on the uh, particular diagnosis of familial amyloid polyneuropathy, which um, has been reported in a certain number of papers as uh, mimicking CIDP and uh, leading thereby to um, the wrong diagnosis and the wrong treatment being administered. It is also uh, important in terms of use of uh, diagnostic tools to be aware that misdiagnosis can occur as a result of over-reliance on um, certain tests such as electrophysiology, which can um, sometimes um, be 
considered um, as more important than the clinical seizures, unfortunately, and lead to the misdiagnosis. And um, it is also uh, very important to remember that treatment unresponsive cases need to be um, always worked up again with um, adequate thought given to genetic causes. And again, familial amyloid neuropathy, but also certain forms of Charcot-Marie 2 disease uh, need to be uh, considered in the differential diagnosis. Yeah, so it certainly sounds I mean, like with a lot of neurological examination that it does, it does require a sort of careful consideration of, of all the possibilities and a combination of electrophysiological studies and, and detailed histories, both family and patient presentation, and a sort of overarching view of all of those particular components um, to order to sort of identify these corresponding components and also the mimic disorders that, that may present themselves. Absolutely. I think there is a, a, a very important need to uh, look at the basics, and the basics uh, mean the uh, actual patient history, but also the family history. Uh, look at um, the uh, clinical examination and anything that may be typical, not just in the neurological examination, but also in the general examination, which um, often is uh, not considered sufficiently early uh, in terms of its importance in establishing the, the right diagnosis at an early stage. And finally, also the adequate use of uh, investigation techniques, as you mentioned, and uh, electrophysiology being um, a very important one. And any uh, unusual or atypical features found on electrophysiology should potentially probably lead to a clinical review and, uh, and, and uh, rethinking about uh, whether this could be something else than what was considered initially. Mm. And of course, um, your review, Yousef, in the, in the JNMP is a worthy resource for people who want to, you know, clinicians and neurologists who want to sort of examine the different mimics and misdiagnoses and reported associations. So it's, it's very, I'm sure it's a very helpful review for, for that sense as well. So, so thank you so much for taking the time today to speak to me about your work and, of course, for, for your publishing your paper in the JNMP. Well, thank you very much for asking me. So that was Professor Yusuf Rajabali from the Aston University in Birmingham. And this is the JNMP podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.